0: The words to which I would like to draw our attention to this morning come from the Gospel according to John chapter 1, verses 29 through 34. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 29. And out of reverence and respect for God's Word, would you stand with me as I read this word? The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. To the Lamb who is standing, but is standing as though slain. In you we find our everything. For you are worthy. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive blessing and honor and glory and might. Wisdom and power and strength. To you be glory forever and ever, we pray. Amen. May be seated. Are you ever disappointed with Jesus? Of course, we would never say that would we? No way. I'm I'm never disappointed with Jesus. He never disappoints me. I'm always satisfied with Jesus. But what happens when things don't go our way in life? What happens when tragedy strikes unexpectedly and hard? What happens when you are in the ruts of life with no apparent way out? What happens when life is boring? Jesus, what are you doing? Jesus, where are you? Jesus, I know you could fix this. I know you could stop this. I know you could take this away. Or what about when we sin? When we do something or say something or think something we shouldn't? Is it ever because we are disappointed with Jesus? Is it ever because we're not truly satisfied with Jesus the way that we should be? Is it ever really because in that moment, Jesus isn't enough? But why might we be disappointed with Jesus Is it ever because we don't think Jesus is focused enough or thinking enough about us? We like our own personal Jesus that is infatuated with us, with me. We become disappointed with Jesus because he isn't centered upon us the way we might want him to be. In fact, isn't that often why we're disappointed with other people in our lives? Because they're not focused on you enough or me enough? If you're ever disappointed with Jesus, does it ever revolve around the expectations you might want Him to meet, that highlight and elevate and exalt you. We're disappointed precisely because we've tried to form Jesus to be someone and do something that He never was meant to be and that He was never meant to do. If you're disappointed with Jesus because he's not feeding your flesh, the problem isn't with Jesus. The problem is with you. A disappointment with Jesus says more about your own heart than it does about the identity of Jesus. This is why we need witnesses concerning who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? Do we get to decide who Jesus is? Do we get to define him? Do we get to make up who Jesus is? Or do other people get to tell us who Jesus is? Does Jesus get to tell us who Jesus is? This is why witnesses like John the Baptist are so important. If we try to define Jesus, if we try to say who we think he should be, we will never be satisfied. We will always feel empty and we will be disappointed. We need those who are outside of us to speak into our hearts, into our lives, and into our minds. We need witnesses to tell us who Jesus is. They give us clear eyes to see him as he truly is, and they provide what we really need. If we're determined to make Jesus who we think we need him to be, we will always be disappointed, but if we listen to these witnesses, if we listen to the testimony of John, if we receive it, if we receive the truth of God's word and what it tells us of who Jesus is, we will never be disappointed in Jesus. Rather, we will be completely satisfied and content in Jesus. Are you content? How about this? Are you content in Jesus? Our culture feeds off of discontentment. They perpetuate it. Have you fallen into that rut of being discontent with the world? Or have you found contentment in Jesus? When we find that contentment in Him, we will be in, at peace in Him. We will have hope in Him, and all our faith and belief. Will be in him. Disappointment comes when we are self centered, but joy and life, perseverance and endurance, grace and strength, worship and glory come when we are rightly centered on Christ. John the Baptist was rightly Christ centered, and he helps us to be rightly Christ centered as he reveals Christ through his ministry. So, who does John the Baptist tell us who Jesus is? Well, there's two outlines in your bullet or two points in your outline on your bulletin. And today I'm only going to make it through one. Lord willing, in 2 weeks after Carl comes, I'll finish it. But this morning I want to focus on number 1, which is this. Jesus is our sin-bearing lamb who takes away our sin. Jesus is our sin-bearing lamb who takes away our sin. Look at these verses here this morning starting in verse 29. The next day he, that's John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him. And let me just put this in the back of your mind those first three words there of Verse 29, the next day, those are important words. Don't skip over those. Don't miss those. We're going to build upon those in the coming weeks. But if you have a journal or something, just underline that, the next day. So the first day, what? uh, John the Baptist was interrogated. Remember, these people came that were sent from the leaders of Jerusalem. They came to John the Baptist and they were interrogating him. Tell us who you are, right? And now this is the next day after that day, that day of interrogation. And this is a transitional point because as of yet, Jesus has not come on the scene. Jesus has not entered into his earthly ministry as it is yet. But now John the Baptist Is going to introduce us to Jesus. Here he is in the flesh. It's both the culmination and climax of John the Baptist's ministry, after which John the Baptist will fade into the background. John's ministry was only a limited ministry for a time, but Jesus now is coming and his ministry lasts. His ministry never fades away. Jesus is never going to fade into the background. John the Baptist is about to fade into the background. He's about to go away, but Jesus isn't. That's why John could say, "Look at him." Because his ministry is forever. John the Baptist was not the Christ. He was not the Messiah. But Jesus introduced never fades away, never stops ministry, never is decreasing, but is always increasing. Here is John. He sees Jesus coming towards him, and he said, just a a, a statement. We don't know specifically who John is talking to, it's this general statement for anyone who is there, and for anyone who has ears that are willing to hear what John is about to proclaim. All who were in earshot would hear John the Baptist make this announcement. Like the shot heard around the world that began the Revolutionary War on April 19, 7075, with the battles of Lexington and Concord. So John's pronouncement has greater implications because truly the world would never be the same after the coming of Jesus. What does John do? He directs all of our attention and invites us to gaze upon Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God. It is an unexpected and shocking announcement. Behold the king, David's son, and the righteous branch. Yes. Behold the Messiah, the coming one, promised from of old. Yes. Behold the final and full seed of the woman, the offspring of Abraham. Yes. Behold the Lord of glory. Yes. Behold the lamb. That doesn't sound triumphant. That doesn't sound victorious. That doesn't sound like something you would want to take pride in or even be excited about. I will look and behold at a spectacle. I will look at something that's worth looking at, something beautiful, something glorious, something awe-inspiring, something amazing, something that captures my imagination and brings me feelings of ecstasy and excitement. I'll look at those things. Behold a lamb? Not so much. What would the original hearers have heard when John says this? Behold the Lamb of God. The difficulty is that there's probably no one verse or event that we can pull from that will make sense of this phrase. Rather, it's a string of events that gives us a growing panorama. To show us Jesus as the Lamb of God. And John, I think, is pulling this imagery from the Old Testament. So let's look at it in this sequential order for a second, as recorded in the Old Testament. So, first, we need to go all the way back to Genesis 22. So, if you have your Bibles, flip all the way back to the first book of the Bible, Genesis 22. There the Lord commanded Abraham, saying, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Amazing, isn't it? Abraham, remember the son of your old age? Remember the son that you had to wait a hundred years for to be born to you and Sarah? Remember when you and Sarah were as good as dead and I gave you a son? Remember that son? The son that I promised to give you? The son that you thought was going to make you into a great nation? Yeah, take that son and sacrifice him and kill him. That was Abraham's, as you read it here, only son. The son whom he loved. But Abraham obeyed. But on the way up the mountain, Isaac, the son, noticed something wrong. He thought they were going to make a sacrifice on the mountain. And so he said to his father, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Uh, Dad, I don't mean to be a nuisance here, but we're missing something. We got everything else, seems like, the wood, the fire, we got it all. But we don't have the lamb, minor detail. What does Abraham say? God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. In fact, sometimes we name children's ministries this like little lambs (laughs) Abraham was going to offer up his little lamb they finally came to the place where God had told them and Abraham built the altar he laid the wood On the altar, he bound his son and laid him on top of the wood. And Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to Abraham, causing him to stop. And there the Lord provided a ram caught in the thicket. And Abraham went and took that ram, offered it up as a burnt offering, instead of his son. Behold the Lamb of God. Then... In Exodus 12, flip over one book forward, Exodus chapter 12. The final plague threatened against Egypt. The killing of every firstborn in the land. The Lord provides a way for his people to avoid this plague. They're to take a lamb for a household, a lamb without blemish, a lamb they brought into their house. They kept it there for two weeks. And as a father with children, I can only imagine, you bring in this lamb into your house. You keep it there for two weeks. The kids name it. The kids play with it. The kids like it. And now you're going to take that lamb and you're going kill it. And you take some of its blood. Put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They were to eat the lamb. And it says this is the Lord's Passover and the blood of the lamb was to be a sign for them that when the Lord would see the blood, he would, what, pass over them so that no plague, the death of the firstborn, would befall upon them and destroy them. Behold the Lamb of God. Then we come to what was read this morning, Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16. We're told about the Day of Atonement, where the high priest was to kill the goat of the sin offering. He was to bring its blood inside the veil of the tabernacle or the temple. This is the only time, one time a year, that the priest could go into the Holy of Holies, and it was this day. He was to go in there behind the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the most holy place, that place that housed the Ark of the Covenant, that place where on the top of that uh, Ark was the mercy seat, the place where it was said that God's presence was to dwell, and there He was to take some of that blood and He was to sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat, the very presence where God was said to dwell, and in front of the mercy seat. And what does it say then? Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions and all of their sins. But there was another goat. That was a goat that died. There was another goat that actually lived. Do you Remember that goat we read about this morning? The high priest would come to that goat, that live goat, would lay his hands on the head of that live goat and confess Over it, all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. And then the goat was going to bear all of their iniquities. And what happened? They let it out into the wilderness. Here's this beautiful picture of all of the sins of the people being put on this goat and then the goat being removed from them. Look, look, Israel, all of your sins are being taken away, they're being removed from you. Look at what God is doing. And they were to let the goat go free in the wilderness. Interestingly enough, this isn't in God's word, but there's some uh, uh, legend kind of behind this, that eventually when they would lead the goat out, they would actually lead it over a cliff. Because the worst thing imaginable is if you lead the goat out into the wilderness and the goat wanders back in to the city. <laughs> but a picture here. The Lord removed the sin from his people. Behold the Lamb of God. How about one more? Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Here's a song of the servant of God. The servant of God we know to be the suffering servant from this chapter. And what does it say in Isaiah 53 verse 7? He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth Like what? Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And then look down a few verses later in verse 11 and 12. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And what shall he do? He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Behold the Lamb of God. Who is this Lamb? He is the Lamb of sacrifice. A substitutionary sacrifice made to atone for the sin of ruined sinners. It is the Lamb of God who combines innocence, voluntary sacrifice, substitutionary atonement, effective obedience, and redemptive power. He is the only way to make us at one and at peace with God. He is the only way we can be reconciled to God. Our sin separated us from God. We were dead in our sin and trespasses. We were those who were condemned because of our sin. But for those who put their faith in Jesus, it was our sin that he bore in his body on the cross. He takes away sin. He forgives. He removes He does what is necessary so that our sin is no longer held against us. He, some big words here, He expiates, that is He makes amends for our sin. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. And this is Expiation, so it's removal. It's making amends for our sins. That's this idea of expiation. He's removing our sins. How is he removing our sins? It's expiation through propitiation. Propitiation, what is that? That is extinguishing the wrath and judgment of God that we deserved. in our place. We no longer have to fear God's wrath and God's judgment, because Jesus took the judgment that should have fallen on us. He took the wrath that should have fallen on us upon himself. He drank, as it were, the cup of God's wrath, and he drank it down to its dregs. You know what that is? Maybe if you've had coffee or tea or something like that and you let that coffee or tea kind of soak into the water and you get to the end and at the bottom there's all that like gritty tea or coffee grounds that have gotten in there. Those are the dregs. Uh, You don't drink those, do you, usually? No, you leave that. Jesus Christ took the cup of God's wrath, the cup that we should have drunk, and he drank it down to its dregs. Meaning, There's no more judgment or wrath reserved for those in Christ Jesus. Look again. What does this Lamb of God do? He takes away the sin of the world. The atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ is not limited to that of Israel. It's possible for all human beings without distinction. It does not mean that everyone is saved without exception. We know that one is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But we do gain a perspective on God's grand plan of redemption that he designed before the foundation of the world. This panoramic view of what the Lamb of God is doing is growing. Remember, Remember how we started? Abraham offered up a ram for him and for his son. The Israelites in Exodus 12 were to take a lamb each for his own household. The high priest on the day of atonement was to make a sacrifice of a goat for the whole nation of Israel. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's the plan where people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation are invited and welcome and called upon to put their faith in Jesus Christ to be saved. Jesus has opened a new and living way that all might come to him. The gospel is the power of God for everyone who believes, both to the Jew and to the Greek. And what is it that Jesus takes away? Look at that word there who takes away the sin, sin in the singular, not the plural. Aren't there sins of the world? Yes, why does John say this, though? He does not draw our attention to a number of individual acts. Sin in the singular refers to the totality of the world's sin. We cannot understand the good news of Jesus Christ without at the same time understanding the bad news. The whole world is bound to the same condemnation since all men without exception are guilty of unrighteousness before God. Therefore, all people need reconciliation with God. But the good news of the Lamb of God is that those who come to put their faith in Him, Jesus' sacrifice for them as sinners is complete. He's left nothing undone or partial or incomplete. But we're not done yet with that little phrase, behold the Lamb of God. Let's draw our attention now to those two little words that come after Lamb. It's the Lamb of God. The lamb that is necessary for our salvation is God's provision to us. Just as the Lord provided the ram caught in the thicket for Abraham, now God has provided a better provision for our salvation. The final, perfect, spotless lamb, his only son, the son whom he loves, Jesus Christ, The only way for you to be saved from your sin is for God to provide the way of salvation. It's not a way you can make up yourself. It's not a salvation that you determine or accomplish by your own works. It's not a salvation based upon your own morality, goodness, or righteousness. It is a way of salvation based on the grace of God and provided for us by God. Behold the Lamb of God because you can't save yourself You can't take away your sin. You can't make yourself accepted in God's sight. You can't make the necessary sacrifice to appease God's wrath and judgment. Beholding the Lamb of God puts us in a posture of complete and utter dependence upon Christ to do everything necessary to save us. It means all of our faith must be in Him because without Him we are lost and dead and eternally damned. It's at this point, I think, that we come to a crossroads. Here is the command from John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God. And John recognizes the superiority and the supremacy of Jesus. He is the one who existed before John. He is the Lord. John's whole ministry was to reveal him and make him known to Israel. Why is it, though, that this command can become cold or frigid or dry. Could it ever be that when John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God, it comes with a yawn rather than a shout for joy? Why is it that we struggle to behold the Lamb of God and all of His wonder and awesomeness and splendor and beauty? If we aren't captivated by the Lamb of God, it's often because we have a small view of our sin. We've minimized our sin or ignored our sin or downplayed our sin or even worse, pretended like our sin isn't there. If our sin is made to seem inconsequential, if we do not see the significant destructive nature it has upon our lives, if we are unwilling to acknowledge sin's dominating power to enslave people and keep them in a state of misery, if we ignore that sin would keep us in spiritual death, and sever us forever from God's favorable presence, then we will not properly behold the Lamb of God because we won't see our desperate need for the Lamb of God. We have to say what the songwriter of Amazing Grace, John Newton, said as his testimony. I am a great sinner. And Christ is a great Savior. I want to draw our attention to one more word in verse 29. This is good news right here. and I don't think we often see it enough. Behold the Lamb of God who... Takes away the sin of the world. Let's look at that word takes for a moment. Look at what John doesn't say. John doesn't say who took away the sin of the world or who will take away the sin of the world or who has taken away the sin of the world. John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes. It is a present verb. Present and it's continuous. Was it a one-time act of Jesus on the cross taking away our sin? Yes. But how do we know it? How do we experience We know it and we experience it in the present and in its continual form. The satisfaction that Jesus Christ completed upon the cross for us flourishes forever. And maybe you're here this morning and you are weighed down by the weight of your sin. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, I, you don't know what I've done. You don't know the sins that I've committed. I don't know if Jesus can forgive me. I don't know if he can take away my sin. It's too much. This is why it comes to us in the present form. Because in this, it ministers to us always. Jesus Christ takes away the sin of the world. Do you need your sin taken away? Jesus still does that today. Jesus still forgives sinners today. Jesus still transfers people out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God. And so whatever it is you think that you've done, whatever state of misery you're living in because of your sin, there's good news. You don't have to stay there. Come to Christ. Put your faith and trust in Him. He is the Lamb of God who bears our sins and takes away our sins so that we are not condemned before God. Jesus takes away all of our sin. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. If you know Jesus, there's nothing left for you to bear. There is no sin left for you to carry. There is no more sin upon which you will know the wrath of God poured out of you because Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath and drank it down to its dregs. No more wrath No more judgment, no more condemnation for the one who is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Sin no longer has dominion in your life, so you have to obey it. Sin no longer has you in a state of spiritual deadness. If you are Christ's, God has made you alive together with him. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah! What a Savior. Father, help us behold again, anew, afresh, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Help us to gaze in wonder and awe and amazement at the beauty of the Lamb that was sacrificed for us. Let us find all hope and all glory in this Lamb. Let us not turn away our eyes from this one and hide our faces in shame. But let us look in faith, in complete trust and dependence, saying, We know simply two things. We are great sinners. And Christ is a great Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.